It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, April 3rd. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. The lack of affordable housing in Nevada County isn't headline news to most residents. However, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza has an exciting look at a new option for those navigating the local housing market. We've got the details on a plan hoping to reduce the cost and time associated with building a new home in Nevada, Placer, and Sierra counties. More details ahead. But first, we'll take a look at the California report. Then in National Native News, in the wake of tragedy, First Nations tribes on the Quebec, Ontario, and New York state border are warning desperate migrants not to attempt passage over the St. Lawrence River. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Across the country, there's been a sharp increase in people using a mixture of the animal tranquilizer xylazine with street drugs like fentanyl. But here in California, state public health officer Dr. Thomas Erdogan, in a letter to local health officials, says there's no evidence xylazine is prevalent in California's drug supply. Even so, Central Coast Congressman Jimmy Panetta is sponsoring a bipartisan bill to crack down on the drug. Here's Panetta. Not only will our legislation punish those who use it in an illicit manner, it will track the production and the distribution of xylazine, which is not being done right now. And it can have deadly consequences. Xylazine was found in four people who died of drug overdoses in San Francisco in recent months. When the food scraps we throw out from our kitchens get hauled to dumps, they release methane, which is a super accelerant of climate change. So last year, a state law went into effect requiring California cities to slash the amount of food waste they send to landfills. How is implementation of that law going? I went to Santa Cruz to see how one city is trying to throw a lot less food into the garbage. In a corner of the Santa Cruz Municipal Dump, I'm watching as thousands of pounds of the city's food waste, waste that not so long ago would have been trucked to the adjacent landfill, instead get pulverized by two enormous corkscrew-shaped shredders. It's the first step in Santa Cruz's new food scraps recycling system, explains Guadalupe Sanchez, the facility's manager. And so we pretty much just offload everything into the shredder pod. And at the end of the day, what kind of material do you get? Well, what comes out? Kind of like oatmeal. Kind of a slurry. Yes, yeah. slurry, a like mash. It does not look like food. All that waste then gets trucked to a facility 30 miles away where it's turned into animal feed. But looking ahead, Bob Nelson, Santa Cruz's Director of Resource Recovery, says the city has bigger, closer to home plans for its food scraps. The future goal is actually to bring it to our wastewater treatment plant and create energy out of it. Oh, so, so trash to power. Yes. Welcome to the new frontier of California recycling, where a state law enacted last year requires cities to slash the amount of food waste heading to landfills by 75% by the year 2025. To do that, Californians are being asked to separate their food scraps from the rest of their trash so it can be recycled. And that's what's brought me to the home of Santa Cruz resident Vivian Vargas. Could you show me your your organic waste? (laughs) Not to pry, but... (laughs) 
It's a, it's a personal question, I realize. Just outside her kitchen, Varka shows me her nearly full six-gallon food scrap waste bin that's been distributed to thousands of Santa Cruz residents by the city. Right now I see eggplant, onions, tomato, cucumber, kind of all the standard stuff from a, from a kitchen, right? Yeah, and green tea. Lots of green tea goes in there. A self-described old hippie, Varkas is an enthusiastic food recycler, seeing it as one way to live out her environmental ideals. This is just the right thing to do. We can see already the effects that we're having with climate changes. And while we can't be the next Greta Thunberg, we can take those scraps and then just put them into the bin. But Santa Cruz officials acknowledge that even in an eco-conscious city like theirs, so far, it's been difficult to get most residents to participate in the food waste recycling program. Again, Bob Nelson. We have lots of people that are really interested in it, but then we have a lot of people that are just, they don't care about it. They think it's too hard, difficult, it stinks, it, you know. People who think, I don't want to mess with my food garbage. Is that basically what you're talking right. about? I'm just going to throw it in the garbage and it'll be gone. Another big challenge has been convincing Santa Cruz's businesses to participate in the food recycling program. The way that it was before was throw things in a bucket and it got hauled off in the trash can. That's Ryan Stack, a supermarket manager in Santa Cruz. He accepts California's food recycling law, but complains it's created new garbage sorting headaches at his store, especially when it comes to packaged foods. And so what we're dealing with now is separating the whole foods from the plastic containers that they come in or the mesh netting. And uh, we're looking at about 150% increase in the time spent processing food scraps. Oh, really? Yeah. Stack thinks a more important way to reduce food waste might be cultural, getting consumers to accept slightly imperfect food that stores throw away by the ton because people won't buy it. We talk about that as Stack shows me his store's recycling dumpster, where he and his staff toss out perfectly edible but not sellable food. I mean, these are too green for market is what that one comes down to. These Roma tomatoes, they're just too green to, to really make it, so... So it's a matter of kind of consumer acceptance, right? Absolutely. The grocery industry it does have a lot of food waste. Right now, cities like Santa Cruz are using the carrot approach to food waste recycling, launching public education campaigns to coax residents and businesses to participate. But starting next year, the stick comes out. Cities can start issuing fines of up to $500 for those who don't recycle their food scraps. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at Guideline.com CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health, on the web at 11thHourRacing.org. And finally, congratulations and good luck to San Diego State University's men's basketball team as the Aztecs face the University of Connecticut's Huskies in tonight's NCAA National Championship game. The Aztecs got their ticket punched to the final game with a dramatic last-second victory against Florida Atlantic University on Saturday night. Here's sound of SDSU guard Lamont Butler making that basket with no time to spare. It's Butler with two seconds. He's got to put it up. And he wins it. He wins it. 
San Diego Miracle indeed. Tonight's matchup against UConn will be San Diego State's first ever appearance in the national championship game. And that is the California Report for Monday, April 3rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and let's talk again tomorrow. Asylum seekers are attempting dangerous crossings into the United States from Canada. In the wake of tragedy, First Nations tribes on the Quebec, Ontario, and New York state border are warning desperate migrants not to attempt passage over the St. Lawrence River. Details ahead on National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation on a reserve that straddles the border between Canada and the United States has been shaken by the deaths of eight suspected migrants. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the bodies were found in the St. Lawrence River. Details are still sketchy and only two of the victims have been identified. But the group had apparently tried to cross into the United States from Canada across the St. Lawrence River in an area where the Aquasasne Mohawk Reserve straddles the international border. The First Nation borders on Quebec, Ontario, and New York State. Sean DeLude is the chief of the Aquasasne Mohawk Police Service. He says eight bodies, including two children, have now been recovered after an overturned boat was found in the water late last week. All are believed to have been attempting illegal entry into the United States from Canada. The circumstances surrounding the deaths continue to be investigated. Aquasasne Mohawk Police are working with Immigration Canada and Homeland Security to confirm their identities so that the next of kin notifications can be made. Officials say the boat was too small to be able to carry safely seven or eight people. Elders at the First Nations say the St. Lawrence is always a major concern, especially with spring runoff. The current is stronger and the water ice cold. Some say they wouldn't venture out on the river until at least May. Officials say at least 80 people have been intercepted as they tried to cross into the U.S. since January. The eight victims are apparently from two families, one Romanian, the other Indian. Advocates for asylum seekers say since the closing of the irregular crossing at Roxham Road less than a week ago, desperate migrants trying to cross to either country will try more hazardous methods of doing so. Still missing is 30-year-old Casey Oakes, a resident of the Aquasasne First Nation. Police would not say if his disappearance and the bodies found in the marsh along the river are linked. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A grant is helping student parents at a tribal college in northwestern Montana. Eric Tigadoff has more. The Aspen Institute has announced Blackfeet Community College and seven other institutes around the country have joined the Black and Native Family Futures Fund. Linda Suracine is a counselor at the school and is overseeing the $75,000 grant. She says COVID-19 hit the Blackfeet Reservation hard, and many students are grieving. To be able to get good grades and all that, you need to have some peace in your life. And I always feel that if we're not well mentally and emotionally and physically, then we're not going to be able to succeed. The grant comes with technical assistance to implement programs as well. Blackfeet Community College is setting up the Native Student Parent Program, which will help young mothers with child care, food, and transportation. Racine says elders also are helping with the program. She says workshops for the young mothers include making traditional outfits for their kids. We just don't want our people to lose their cultural and their traditional way of life. So it's very important that we integrate it in everything we do. The eight institutions that received funding are historically black colleges and universities and tribal colleges and universities. 
Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. I'm Eric Tegadov. The Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is adding a health and wellness management program to its academic roster. IAIA announced over the weekend the new Be Well program. Students will soon be able to earn a degree in bee therapy. Classes include bee here, now meditation, and floral arrangement. The program will be housed in a building named The Hive, healthy individuals vibing energetically. Construction is expected to start on the building this spring, and a full list of courses in the program will soon be released. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. UBINET has shared Placer and Nevada County's annual point-in-time survey of people experiencing homelessness. The survey was conducted from January 25th through February 3rd. Over this time, 150 volunteers, nonprofit, city, and county staff traveled throughout the counties asking people where they stayed on the night of January 25th. The point-in-time count is a one-night estimate of both sheltered and unsheltered homeless populations. The 2023 count received responses from 709 individuals experiencing homelessness in Placer County and 496 individuals experiencing homelessness in Nevada County. Those numbers are down from 2022's point-in-time survey. Last year's count saw 41 more homeless individuals in Placer County and 31 more homeless individuals in Nevada County. The survey was led by the Homeless Resource Council of the Sierras, which is the region's lead continuum of care organization. The nonprofit and government collaborative coordinates resources and develops strategies to end homelessness in Placer and Nevada counties. In Placer County, this most recent point-in-time survey counted 78 people who self-identify as domestic violence survivors, 47 as veterans, 25 as unaccompanied youth, and 311 as living with a mental health disability. In Nevada County, 50 individuals self-identified as domestic violence survivors, 27 as veterans, 26 as unaccompanied youth, and 209 as living with a mental health disability. 37% of those experiencing homelessness were identified as chronically homeless in Placer County. In Nevada County, that number was 30%. The survey classifies those who have been currently unhoused for one year or repeatedly over the last three years as chronically homeless. 
The California Preservation Foundation has announced winners of the 2023 Preservation Design Awards, recognizing the best in historic preservation, restoration, adaptive reuse, and rehabilitation. And one of this year's 16 winners, the Bridgeport Covered Bridge, is from Penn Valley in Nevada County. The bridge is being recognized for craftsmanship and preservation technology. Winners must demonstrate innovative responses to historic preservation in both the built and unbuilt realms of our heritage. They must also prioritize equity and access and open the possibilities of historic preservation in new, broad, and inclusive ways. The Bridgeport Covered Bridge, located in South Yuba River State Park, was built in 1862 and remains the longest historic single-span covered bridge in the United States. It was an important part of early California transportation and gold rush history as the primary route to the Comstock Load in Nevada. After extensive rehabilitation efforts to repair structural damage, the bridge was reopened to the public after a decade of being closed. The Bridgeport Covered Bridge will be formally recognized at the annual California Preservation Foundation Conference at the Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture in San Francisco on Thursday, April 20th. The program will also be streamed online. This reported by the Union of Grass Valley. The Department of Water Resources, or DWR, conducted the fourth snow survey of the season today at Phillips Station in the Sierra Nevada. The manual survey recorded 126.5 inches of snow depth and a snow water equivalent of 54 inches. This is 221% of average for this location. The snow water equivalent measures the amount of water contained in the snowpack and is a key component of DWR's water supply forecast. The department's electronic readings from 130 snow sensors placed throughout the state indicate the statewide snowpack snow water equivalent just over 61 inches, or 237% of average for this state. Quote, this year's severe storms and flooding is the latest example that California's climate is becoming more extreme, says DWR Director Carla Nemeth. She continues, after the driest three years on record and devastating drought impacts to communities across the state, DWR has rapidly shifted to flood response and forecasting for the upcoming snowmelt. We've provided flood assistance to many communities who just a few months ago were facing severe drought impacts. This year's April 1st result from the statewide snow sensor network is higher than any other reading since the snow sensor network was established in the mid-1980s. Let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low around 25 degrees. Widespread frost after midnight, winds could gust as high as 20 miles per hour. Tuesday, widespread frost before 10 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 48. The National Weather Service has issued a wind advisory in effect until 8 p.m. this evening. Gusts up to 40 miles per hour are possible. This means the potential for blown down tree limbs and power outages. The National Weather Service has also issued a frost advisory for the Nevada City Grass Valley area, in effect from 2 a.m. to 9 a.m. Tuesday. Frost could kill outdoor vegetation if left uncovered. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 8 degrees. A 20% chance of snow showers before 8 p.m. Thunder is also possible. Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high near 33. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly clear with a low around 35 degrees. Areas of frost after 4 a.m. with gusts of wind as high as 21 miles per hour. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 59. 
areas of frost before 8 a.m. The National Weather Service has issued a wind and frost advisory for the Sacramento area. Expect gusty conditions until 8 p.m. this evening. Frost lingers until 9 a.m. on Tuesday. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The lack of affordable housing in Nevada County isn't headline news to most residents. However, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza has an exciting look at a new option for those navigating the local housing market. We've got the details on a plan hoping to reduce the cost and time associated with building a new home in Nevada, Placer, and Sierra counties. That's coming up next. After almost three years of work, Nevada County announced today the availability of three new affordable housing master plans that can be used to construct a single-family home or an accessory dwelling unit, sometimes referred to as a mother-in-law unit. The project is the result of a collaboration between Nevada, Placer, and Sierra counties, the town of Truckee, the city of Grass Valley, and the city of Nevada City. Each jurisdiction partnered with Jackson and Sands Engineering of Chico and Russell Davidson Architecture of Grass Valley to develop, review, and approve the plan sets. The idea is to reduce the cost and the time associated with building a new residence. I asked Nick McBurney, supervising plans examiner in Nevada County, what the county asked for when they put out their request for proposal. One is that there be very little waste in terms of construction waste so that you can build something efficiently and in a cost-effective manner. In addition to that, these are relatively modern designs. We looked at multiple different design ideas, and these are a modern style. They are very energy efficient, which allows for low cost of occupation. And plans themselves are quite flexible in terms of the options that you can select without having to go back to them for any additional changes to the plans. The pre-approved plans are designed to be used by first-time owner-builders or experienced contractors, and Nick stressed that they are designed with flexibility in mind. They're not just three sets of plans, a one, a two, and a three-bedroom unit. Each of them also has options for either a garage or no garage, the type of heating system that they uh, use, whether it's a slab foundation or a raised floor foundation, the type of roofing, the type of siding, and then they can be built in any orientation, so you don't have to rerun your energy calculations. All of that flexibility is built into the plans, and so you don't have to go back to Jackson and Sands and pay more money to build the house that you want. The plans are available on the county's website now and ready for use. All you need to apply for a permit is the floor plan and elevations, which is available to download. There's also a bid set, which has all the sheets in the plans. So if you want to get an estimate from a licensed contractor, you can do that using the information available. You can review the plans at nevadacountyca.gov slash cdahousing, or if you have questions, you can contact the building department by calling 530-265-1222, or you can email them at buildingdept at nevadacountyca.gov. For KVMR, I'm Claudio Mendoza. That's our newscast for Monday, April 3rd. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Four Paws Animal Clinic. Dr. Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions. 
on Searles Avenue, Nevada City, fourpawsac.com. And Best Friends Animal Clinic on Highway 174, Grass Valley, where doctors Melanie Curtis, Susan Klopfer, and staff provide comprehensive veterinary care for family dogs and cats. Information at bestfriends-animalclinic.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.